Please help us with our GoFundMe campaign. You'll find the link on our website, bobcudmore.com, to GoFundMe, or send us a check made out to Bob Cudmore, 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. David Petruja is from our mutual hometown of Amsterdam, New York. He now lives in Glenville, New York. He's written more than 30 books, mainly about national politics and baseball, including 1920, the year of the six presidents, Rothstein, and his excellent memoir about growing up in our hometown of Amsterdam, Too Long Ago, A Childhood Memory, a vanished world, but yet he has hustled and produced a new book, which is out right now. It's uh, called Roosevelt Sweeps Nation, FDR's 1936 Landslide and the Triumph of the Liberal Ideal. Even I know, uh, David, that Roosevelt won that election, and he won it resoundingly, why did you write about it? Well, often the big blowout elections are ignored by by history. They don't get their own. Uh, as, you know, who is it? Uh, Elton B. Parker is the only presidential candidate without a biography. And the big blowouts tend to be the uh, books which no one writes about. But there are stories there. There's a reason why those blowouts happened how they happened, were they supposed to happen, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. So my first book I did on presidential campaigns, 1920, the year of the six presidents, was one of those blowout years. And it turned out to be, you know, uh, highly successful uh, commercially and artistically. And so 1936, I wrote under the cover of COVID Darkness, and uh, crank that one out, and the same sort of principles were at play, where once you get beyond the uh, final score, you find there were a lot of things going on in the nine innings beforehand. In preparing for this book, you had you devised a kind of a calendar so you know who some of the what some of the main players are doing, they they being FDR, the opponent, Alf Landon, Eleanor Roosevelt, Huey Long, Father Coughlin, uh, William Randolph Hearst, and others. You, you wanted to put everybody in the context of everybody else? Right. So uh, all these books start out with a cast of characters because while the main ones, everyone knows Franklin and then Eleanor, uh, but not everybody knows everybody else. And then there are guys who are lost, guys and gals who are sort of lost into the, the mists of history. So you want people to be able to, you know, thumb back to the beginning. And it's like, now, who is, who is that guy again? And what did he do? And uh, how old was he? And et cetera, like, et cetera, et cetera. And also uh, creating, not in the book, but in, in terms of the... Uh, research for the book is I create a chronology and that way you can see what's going on and maybe somebody's doing something at the same time uh, as, as somebody else and and it puts things into a greater context um, but I mean those things can be extremely 
elaborate, and uh, I might do a 100,000-word timeline for a 150,000-word book. But otherwise, you, you can really get lost in that, uh, in that level of detail. And so people say, how can you keep all those things straight? Um, <laughs> by organization <laughs> and by very hard work. I'm sure. Now, FDR didn't exactly charge into this uh, election. He, he went on vacation after he was nominated. Yeah, that's the uh, politics was uh, different then in a lot of ways. His opponent, Alf Landon, does the same thing. Alf Landon does not go to the Republican National Convention. And right after that, when you think it's like you, you would, the logical thing is, I'm running against Franklin D. Roosevelt. I've got to work like hell <laughs> to beat this guy. And what's he do? He goes out to a very uh, tony, expensive resort in Colorado for for a few weeks. He doesn't start his campaign for for maybe a couple of months. His running mate is 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 is, is off and running, uh, Frank Knox. But he's he's laying low. He's still got gubernatorial duties. But uh, gee whiz, he's running for for president and he plans two more vacations after that in the in the course of, of the campaign franklin roosevelt who is a hell of a lot better politician than uh alf landon is uh doing sort of the same thing he goes off on a on a, a yawl i guess is what you call that kind of a boat it's not a southern boat but it's a yawl anyway <laughs> uh called the Sawana. And um, he's off the coast of Maine and New Brunswick for two weeks early on in the campaign. He doesn't officially start his campaign. I think it's September 29th in Syracuse, New York, of all places. Eleanor Roosevelt writes a big uh, uh, memo to everyone uh, really uh, excoriating them and saying, shape up, this campaign is a mess. And she's not writing that memo again. She's not writing it in January. She's writing that in September. Tell, let me ask you about some of the other characters that we mentioned in starting. Um, Huey Long, he might have opposed Roosevelt, but he was assassinated? Yeah, Huey Long, Democratic senator from Louisiana, formerly the governor uh, in many eyes, the dictator of Louisiana. There's some very nasty stuff which goes on when when he's governor and senator, and uh, uh, there there are armed National Guardsmen on his side and on the mayor of New Orleans side with big sub with big machine guns left over from World War One and sandbags and all sorts of of, of things going on there. But he wants to be president, and it's not a new thing. He's been fantastically ambitious since he was probably a, a kid and lays it all out to his wife when he is courting her, saying what he's going to do. He's going to win a minor office, and then he's going to move on to governor, then he's going to move on to senator, and then he's going to be president. And he's telling, you know, he's telling her this when he's a traveling salesman in, in, in remote Louisiana. But he means it, and he's got the oratorical skill and the ambition to, to pull all of those things off, except for the presidency, and he only is, is prevented from doing that because he shot dead in 1935. His plan 
was not a straightforward plan because there was this guy named Franklin D. Roosevelt standing in his way, but his plan was to run third party, pull off enough Democratic votes in certain key states, throw the election to the Republicans. The Republicans would mess things up far worse then than they had under Herbert Hoover, and then the country would be begging Huey Long to come back on a white horse in 1940 and take control of the White House. Who killed him? Well, Huey Long goes back to Baton Rouge, the state capital, in, I think, September 1935, to pass a whole bunch of laws to punish his political appointees, one of whom is a judge, Judge Pavey, and he's going to redistrict him and and there, he's also spreading rumors about the judge's family and that there's a woman in it who is of mixed race, which I don't think is true, but you're putting out the smear. And Judge Pavey's son-in-law uh, is lurking in the corridor of the state capitol. He's a doctor. Uh, he's a very well-known eye doctor in the state, young man, and he shoots at Huey Long and... Now, here's, here's where, again, where the story gets complicated. Does he kill Huey Long, okay? Or do the bullets ricocheting off the marble corridor walls by Huey Long's bodyguards aimed at Seymour Weiss, who is the punitive uh, mm-hmm. assassin, ricocheting off, is it that, those bullets that actually kill Long, and not the assassin's bullet. And those one, that's one of the things we'll never know and one of those things that people can speculate on. But it doesn't change the fact that Huey Long is stone cold dead and out of the way of Franklin Roosevelt running for a second term. Who was Father Coughlin? Father Coughlin was a radio commentator, a priest in the sub- northern suburbs of Detroit, he comes over from Canada, where he was born. Uh, he's, so he's, is he an American? Is he a Canadian? His father was an American citizen, so I guess he was an American citizen. And he takes over this little parish in Royal Oak, Michigan, starts going on the radio, when radio is still pretty much in its infancy, over WJR, the voice of Detroit. And starting talking with children's stories. And he says he's not going to be controversial. And that lasts about, oh, five minutes. (laughs) (laughs) And and, uh, he starts excoriating Herbert Hoover and Prohibition and the gold standard. And by 1930, when Franklin Roosevelt is reelected in a landslide as governor of New York, he is booming Franklin Roosevelt for the presidency. He's he's almost comparing him to Jesus Christ. And he thinks he can be a really key advisor to President Franklin Roosevelt. Franklin Roosevelt does not care for him at all. He's willing to use him at first, but they they break fairly quickly so that by 1936 Coughlin is no longer on the team and he is going to team up with the henchman, who, the surviving henchman, the Reverend um, Gerald L.K. Smith, who had worked for Huey Long, and then a third populist 
fellow named uh, Dr. Francis Townsend, who has a um, $200 a month plan for pensions to every one over 65, which is a hell of a lot of money in 1936. Mm -hmm. And his basis for collecting the money to pay for this is basically unsound. And it's a, it's, it's a used, um, a value added tax, basically. Uh, and the equivalent of a sales tax. So these things tend to be regressive, and Franklin Roosevelt hates the idea. But in response to it, Roosevelt, who had been going very slowly and publicly expressing doubts as to whether there should be uh, a Social Security plan at that point in time, uh, even excoriating his, his key aide, Harry Hopkins, about that when Hopkins says, the time is now. And the next day, Franklin Roosevelt says, no, the time is not now. But when the Townsend plan is introduced into the House of Representatives the very next day, Franklin Roosevelt, who had been putting uh, opposition to Hopkins and also to Senator Wagner about Social Security previously, then he introduces Social Security and only then. Over on the right side... We have William Randolph Hearst, who had no love affair with FDR. Yeah, like Huey Long and Father Coughlin, who had supported Roosevelt in 1932 with varying degrees of enthusiasm, Hearst, the big press baron, well, he had started out as a, as a very progressive, almost radical guy. He wanted to be president around the turn of the century, but he doesn't. They, he keeps losing elections and nominations. So by about 1910 or so, people are calling him William, also Randolph Hearst, and um, he he doesn't particularly care for Roosevelt in 32, but he really doesn't like Hoover, and he is cajoled into supporting Roosevelt for the nomination because. Hearst controls the delegates from California and Texas, and another Democrat, Al Smith, uh, former governor of New York, had really slowed down Roosevelt's march to the nomination. And he, he wins the, the final few primaries and deprives Roosevelt of the two-thirds vote of the delegates he needs to be nominated because until 1936, the Democrats need two-thirds to nominate. So Hearst pushes Franklin Roosevelt over the top, but he doesn't like his tax policies. He doesn't like the National Recovery Administration. Um, and, and he's been trending more conservative of late. And so he will turn on Franklin Roosevelt, and he will become uh, the biggest media booster of Alf Landon to get that Republican nomination. Now, Alf Landon uh, wasn't, I mean, he, he was a progressive guy, right? Or kind of a liberal guy himself. Yeah, when uh, Lorena Hickok, who is uh, Eleanor Roosevelt's great friend, is, is sent around by Harry Hopkins to get the lay, uh, to, to understand what the scuttlebutt is around the country. And to report back, she says, wow, what's going out in, in Kansas? This is in 1934 when Alf Landon is running for re-election. Uh, this guy sounds like a new deal, new dealer. Uh, the Democrats are going to have a very tough time winning in, uh, 
in Kansas. So he, he supported a lot of the New Deal programs, and he had been one of these T.R., Theodore Roosevelt, progressive Republicans in 1912, uh, when T.R. Bolts, the Republican Party, uh, to run as the Bull Moose Party candidate and to sink William Howard Taft. And not only is Landon a former Bull Moose progressive Republican, so is his running mate, Colonel Frank Knox, a newspaper, another newspaper publisher. He's out of Chicago now, and he had once worked for Hearst. Uh, but also Herbert Hoover had supported T.R. in 1912. So you see a lot of these old bull mooser guys roaming <laughs> around, and, and also even in uh, Franklin Roosevelt's administration, where the Secretary of Interior, Harold Ickes, was, a, was one of these guys. Henry Wallace was. Uh, Donald K. Richburg, who at one point ran the NRA. Um, and so uh, there... And Roosevelt, what he wants to do is not only to win. A lot of people are nervous about whether he's going to win. He's not nervous about it. And what he wants to do is realign the parties. And if he can get enough of the progressive Republicans backing him and into the Democratic Party, then he won't need the conservatives in the party as much anymore. And they can go, <laughs> they can go take a walk and join the Republicans or run third party or do whatever they want but that's that is his one of his great mm -hmm. goals in the 1936 election eventually something like that is going to happen but it's going to be long after he's he's gone that is the year also where the republicans when when roosevelt wins in 1932 the republicans are still like 56 percent 59 percent somewhere in that range of the of the of the electorate it's still a republican country and mm -hmm. then it goes down to like around 52 percent in 1934 the republicans are still getting shellacked but most people still are registered republicans in 1936 that changes and then you get down to around 46 percent so there's this big drop in four years in in republican registration and that also mirrors uh, the change in the historically Republican black vote, where Herbert Hoover had carried uh, the black vote in 1932, and it, Franklin Roosevelt is going to carry it with 71% of the vote in 1936, which looks low by current standards, but mm -hmm. was, was earth-shaking back then. Uh, two, he's very popular with with blacks, he's very popular with Southerners. He's very popular with Westerners, with farmers. He's just damn very popular, and he gets seventy-five percent of the Catholic vote and ninety percent of the Jewish vote. There was concern that he wasn't that popular in New York State. Yes, the polling, the internal Democratic polling, was was very nervous about that. And one of the things that was worrying them was the Socialist Party had drawn pretty well in local elections and for governor in New York State in the, in the past few years. And if the election was going to be close, maybe the Socialists were, were going to split the uh, liberal progressive vote and, and deny Roosevelt the, um, 
the electoral votes, 45 electoral votes from New York. Now, he is so nervous, Franklin Roosevelt is so nervous that his successor as governor, Herbert Lehman, wanted to, he just wanted to get out of politics. He was a very wealthy man, a banker. He didn't need the job. And he says, I'm not going to run again. And Franklin Roosevelt says, you're going to run again. And then, okay, I'll run again. And then he says, no, I'm not going to run again. And this is just before the uh, Democratic convention in Philadelphia. Roosevelt showcases him at that convention, makes him like a big, you know, speaker to galvanize the crowd. He's not a galvanizer, okay? <laughs> but Roosevelt is really buttering him up. And he takes him back to Hyde Park on the train. And, oh, you must stay in for the social security in small letters of the nation, of the entire nation. I mean this literally. And he begs him because he's really afraid that without Herbert Lehman on the ticket, he's not going to be able to carry New York, which sounds, you know, ridiculous. But that that is the thinking and that that is the fear. It's unnecessary. And Roosevelt outpaces both Lehman and Murphy in the in the polls and the voting in November. But they don't know that then. FDR through the campaign was the I mean, despite some of the things you've just been saying, wasn't he the most optimistic that he was going to win? He really was. There, he doesn't really show any nervousness about this. There are few few people who don't uh, betray that nervousness. And, and Roosevelt is one. His vice president, John Nance Gardner, is one. Jim Farley, uh, who is the New York State Democratic chairman and the National Democratic chairman and the postmaster general, and he's handing out, you know, whatever patronage is left over between Harry Hopkins and and uh, Harold Ickes, that he says, I, I'm not listening to these polls. I'm not listening to these polls. And at the end of, of the day, he tells Franklin Roosevelt, you're going to win by a million votes in New York State. And he's right. That's, that's exactly what Franklin Roosevelt does. But at the beginning of the campaign, uh, Sam Rosenman, who is uh, his big speech, one of his big speech writers, he has a whole stable of them, uh, is, is comes to the White House for a visit and is very, very worried. And Franklin Roosevelt said, don't worry. If, if, if things are a little rocky now, it will change by November. And his, his predictions of the Electoral College are always, he's always winning. He never says, I'm behind at any point. Now, the uh, Literary Digest, of course, famously gets it so wrong. They say that Alf Landon is going to, win 31 states he carries two states Hmm. uh, maine and vermont eight electoral votes but even george gallup who gets a lot of credit for being right with the election although he under at the end he underestimates roosevelt's vote as well um and in july 12 his report says that landon is ahead in the electoral college not ahead in the popular vote but in the Electoral College. And with these third parties, all of whom are economically, at least, on the left, uh, do they have the possibility of siphoning votes off? Do the socialists, do the communists, does the, uh, the Coughlin, Townsend uh, Union Party, are they, are they going to do this or not? And, of course, that Union Party is a bunch of amateurs. 
these guys had never run for anything before. Their candidate had, but he was a two-term congressman from North Dakota, hardly uh, in, a, in a class with Franklin Roosevelt or Huey Long. Um, but they, they are only going to be able to draw 1.2% of the national vote, less than a million votes. And Father Coughlin was shooting his mouth off once on the radio or in one of these big rallies he was withhold. And he says, I've got 9 million listeners. And if I can't deliver 9 million votes to our candidate, Congressman William Lemke, I am going off the air. I'm going off the radio. Well, he did, and he did go off the radio, but, okay. but he came back. Like MacArthur, he returned. Right. Now, when the election's over, I mean, Alf Landon just hangs on for a long time. Didn't he keep running for president over the no, years? No, he didn't. Harold Stass, I think you're thinking of Harold Stass. Alf Landon. In fact, he, uh, uh, he doesn't carry Kansas. FDR poured a lot of money in public funds into Kansas, specifically to, to sink him in that. It, it sunk him so bad that his uh, candidate, his, his secretary, who was running for governor as a Republican, lost, and that was that was a bit of a shock to, to everyone, including even the guy who ran <laughs> and, and beat the Republican. Um, but the he continues to he, he lives to like he's almost a hundred okay and his daughter Nancy Landenbaum uh, uh, Nancy Landon Kassenbaum becomes the United States Senator from um, Kansas one of those sort of you know moderate Republicans very much in the mm -hmm. in the vein of her father after the election FDR and the Democrats take a tumble in the next election. Yeah, uh, it's it's not that unusual for for these things to happen. That the uh, like in 1964 when Lyndon Johnson crushes Barry Goldwater and the Republicans, then the Republicans come sweeping back in the midterms in 1966, and when Warren Harding wins so big in 1920. The uh, the Democrats come roaring back in 1922, so they they did that election in 24 looks sort of uh, dicey. But what Roosevelt does, he's at the peak of his game in 1936, but then he starts overreaching. They they have a lot of of labor legislation in the midst of of unemployment and a depression really. It's it's still a depression when he's running. It's there's thirteen to fourteen percent unemployment in November nineteen thirty six, which sounds terrible, but it is the lowest unemployment rate since nineteen thirty one when Herbert when Herbert Hoover was in there. Hmm. Um, so it's you know is the glass half full or half empty? But aside from the depression, uh, the economy going down after that 1936 election, he decides, I've had it with the Supreme Court um, get overturning programs of mine like the National Recovery Administration or the Agricultural Adjustment Act, and I'm going to pack the Supreme Court. Well, this goes over very badly. And not only with Republicans, not that there were that many Republicans in Congress who could stop him, but with a huge percentage of Democrats. And hmm. uh, he is he is defeated very badly on that issue. And really, at that point, after that 1938 election, 
the New Deal starts to wind down. There, there are really no new initiatives, and then you get into the big initiative of World War II and preparation for that. But in 1936, the country was extremely isolationist, and that's when Franklin Roosevelt is, is uh, on his way west. He stops at the Chautauqua Institute in western New York and gives that famous speech where he, he says, I have seen war. I hate war. And, and you know, kind of gets to the isolationist um, advantage right. over Landon at that point. Roosevelt sweeps nation, FDR's 1936 landslide, and the triumph of the liberal ideal. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.